Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 1, 27 through 28, Genesis 2, 23 through 24, 1 Corinthians 6, 13b through 20, and 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 44. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The word of the Lord. Uh, I've said this before. I think it's appropriate again. I think there are two topics that no one really wants to discuss in church. Uh, That would be money and sex. Uh, We're not talking about money today. Um, You know, I step into today... Honestly, uh, burdened uh, for many reasons, because the topic of sex and sexuality uh, is one that's really fraught with complex, nuanced desires and experiences and beliefs. And for some, maybe even right now, as I begin talking about sex and sexuality, you can feel your heart rate amping up. You can feel your body beginning to tense. You can maybe even feel your spirit beginning to weigh down because you have experienced at various points, maybe over the course of time, teachings or direct actions from church leaders that have in some ways uh, caused you to feel ashamed or dirty or hated or condemned or mocked or marginalized, all of which has been around this topic of sexuality because too often there are Christians have a way of talking about sex and sexuality and gender 
that have lacked love and grace and compassion or even just basic attempts at understanding. And so I realized for all of those reasons, the topic of sex and sexuality can be a difficult one. And so, my friends, if that is you, I want to just start today by saying that one, I am sorry for that hurt and that disorientation and, that, and the fear that you've experienced around this topic. But my prayer today is that the Lord uh, would give me the grace to communicate in a way that's faithful, but to also to communicate in a way that is loving and uplifting and ultimately Jesus glorifying. That has been my prayer all week. And so, with that said, today we continue our series called The Resurrection. It's a series focused on how the resurrection of Jesus shapes uh, our understanding of life's most pressing issues. Uh, And today we consider how the resurrection shapes our understanding of one of life's most central concerns, that of sex and sexuality. Uh, And as we begin, I want to state up front what I intend to do and also what I don't intend to to do. There's so much that could be said on this topic. And so what I intend to do today is to give an overview of what we believe the Bible teaches about our bodies, about sexuality, and the purpose of sex, all of which is understood fully and rightly through the resurrection And my hope is that this becomes kind of the basis for a lot of other conversations about a host of other uh, issues and concerns related to sex and uh, gender and all kinds of other things. And so I I want today to be the the foundation on which maybe we can have some of those other conversations. And I will also just say my door is always open. I'm always happy um, to dialogue more. And so let's understand sex from the biblical perspective through the resurrection by considering how things should be related to sex, how things are related to sex, and how things will be. Okay, so how things should be, how things are, and how things will be. Okay, so first, how things should be. We can't understand uh, the Bible's uh, understanding uh, or teaching of sex um, without first understanding what the Bible says about our bodies, It's a very important foundational piece. And to understand what the Bible has to teach about our physical bodies, we have to start at creation in Genesis 1. And while there's a lot that could be said about the creation account in Genesis 1, the main theme that's being communicated in both uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is actually stated in the very first verse of Genesis 1, which you probably know is, in the beginning, God created. That statement summarizes much of what Genesis is trying to communicate. The creation account is trying to communicate. Now, there's much debate about how one ought to read uh, Genesis 1 and what the takeaway should be, but here's what I want us to start with. We have to see the creation account first as being the fact that Moses, who wrote this, is communicating to the people that Yahweh, the great I am, the true, the all-powerful living God, created the universe. Now, as creator, God creates with purpose and intention, including creating humanity. In Genesis 1.27, God tells us that he created mankind as male and female in his image. And then in verse 31, it says that God saw what he had made and it was very good. Later on in, in Psalm 139, it tells us that God created our innermost beings, that he knit us together in our mother's wombs, and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a physical creation being spoken of here. The idea being that everybody's body 
matters to God. From the moment of conception to the moment of death, we are made in his image. Physically, we are knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. And as a result, we have dignity and value and purpose as image bearers. And what then is the purpose of God's creation of our bodies? Well, it's interesting is that verse 13 tells us that the the body, our bodies, that they're meant for the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it could mean many things, but at minimum, it's emphasizing that there is something about our bodies that point us to himself, our creator. You know, much like one can learn something about uh, an artist in the way that that artist uh, paints a masterpiece, so also can we learn something about God in his creation, including in our very bodies. Now, all of this is incredibly fundamental in understanding the Bible's teaching on sex because we cannot make any strides in understanding sex unless we first establish that God is creator who has knit our bodies together, who creates with intention and reveals something about himself in our bodies. If that is true, then it is also true that God not only has intention in the way that he created our bodies, he also has purposes for how we use our bodies, which is where we then begin to understand that God does have something that he is doing, purposes that he is accomplishing in sex. And that sex is ultimately a reflection of him. So what then is God's intention for sex? Well, one of the first things that God commands uh, that Adam and Eve do is to be fruitful and multiply. I hope that it's obvious that one of the intentions of sex is procreation. But we also know that sex is so much more than the simple passing of genes like that in the animal kingdom, but rather sex is given to humanity in the context of a relationship that we see here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, inside this marital relationship. It's this establishment of this marriage covenant relationship that God says in uh, Genesis 2.24, where Adam and Eve are to become one flesh. We'll talk a little bit about what that means, but that term, one flesh, Genesis 2.24 is not just a, a, a passage or that, that statement of one flesh is not just something that's limited to the creation account. Interesting. This passage, Genesis 2.24, is one of the, the top 10 most quoted verses of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Throughout the scriptures, you have people referencing back to this passage. It's fundamental. And every time it's used, including by Jesus, it's always in the context of understanding marriage, and sex. So what does one flesh mean exactly? Well, there's an obvious physical joining together that's being described here, right? What happens when bodies come together, where the bodies of the husband and the wife interlock together, but it's more than just a physical act. Rather, it's referring to the inner weaving of two people's lives so that they are like they have become one, It's an interweaving of lives into this covenant relationship with one another. And sex is a physical act that reflects the greater commitment that's being um, uh, established. And to connect back to the command of being fruitful, while not all sex, of course, leads to children, it is one of the ways, it is the way in which we get children. And as we all know, children 
do bring people together in very unique ways. And so all of this together is God's purpose, intention for sex. But remember, I also said that God creates for the purpose of revealing something about himself. What is that? And we ever, have we ever thought about how sex does reflect something about God himself? Uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul, in discussing marriage, actually gives us a glimpse into what it is that is being reflected. In verse 21 of Ephesians 5, he tells husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? So this is that commitment. It's that covenant relationship. But then he quotes in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, he quotes our passage where he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32, here's what I'm getting to. In verse 32, he says something really striking about marriage. Okay, coming off of this one flesh idea, Paul then says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church. Interesting. He's coming off the one flesh idea, and then he points our vision toward seeing that one flesh union as reflecting Christ and his church. What is that? Well, marriage is a reflection of God's covenant love in Christ for his people. It's a reflection of the self-giving love of Christ for his bride, the church. The aspirational picture of marriage is self-giving love, the self-giving love of Jesus. And so a husband and wife reflect that love by committing to one another and joining their lives together, becoming one flesh. And so in this way, Sex is a reflection of God's love for his people. Now, having said all that, that is how things should be from the biblical perspective. However, we know that that's not how things are. Our experience of sex and sexuality usually does not align with what I just said. And so we need to now consider not just what sex should be, but also how things are related to sex. Um, I know that I have already said probably 15 different things that many people would find incredibly offensive. Uh, I'm in the middle of one of the most progressively sexual nations in the world. Uh, I am uh, in one of the most progressive boroughs in a progressive city. Uh, and having being in that context, I just made statements like, God has made our bodies with purposes that God has intention for how we use our bodies, and that sex is for marriage between a husband and a wife solely in the context of that covenant bond. I realize that there are many who hear those statements and largely reject those statements as being true. Why? Because each of those statements really runs counter to our cultural assumptions about sex, don't they? Specifically, the prevailing idea is that sex is really just about fulfillment and about pleasure and is determined by my own sense of what is right and wrong for me, not some outside forces, expectations of me. And basically, the prevailing ideas tend to be a rejection of God's intention in favor of our desire. And this is really not actually a new perspective. You know, I say that this is the prevailing idea of the day, but it's really not that new. It's actually that perspective is as old as humanity itself. 
Uh, If you know, going back to the very beginning, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that things go wayward after what we've just read in Genesis 1 and 2. As a result of things going wayward, um, Adam and Eve, they disobey God. And so the scene that we see in Genesis 2 really takes a sharp turn come Genesis 3, if you know the story. See, God had given Adam and Eve the freedom to enjoy all the trees in the garden, if you know the story. Uh, he had given them freedom for all the, all, all the garden except this one tree. And he had, so he had given them this uh, freedom, but with a particular boundary. But then a serpent comes and tries to undermine what God said. He comes to Eve and he entices her to disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit. Again, this is a common story about the creation and the fall. But then in Romans 5, Paul is reflecting on what took place in Genesis 3. And in Romans 5, we're essentially told that we now all naturally are bent toward disobeying God's commands as a result of this fall in Genesis 3. I mean, this is what Christians call sin. It's this bending away from God's purposes. And sin has broken down every single facet of life for us. And that includes our sexuality. The sex presented in Genesis 1 and 2 breaks down in Genesis 3. So that now our experience of sex is sex in a broken form. And that sexual brokenness is what our passage and many other passages call sexual immorality. You see that all throughout the scriptures. Look again at uh, verse 13. Let me just read that again for you. It says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. He goes on to say in verse 18 then, Flee from sexual immorality. For all sins a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So what is exactly sexual immorality? If sexual immorality is the result of the brokenness of this world, what then is sexual immorality specifically? Well, you may know this, but the Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It appears 25 different times in the New Testament. Of course, that word I'm sure sounds familiar. It's where we get the word, the root word for pornography. But what exactly does it mean? Well, porneia is this all-encompassing word that describes sexual energy that is used with someone who is not their spouse. Porneia is, you know, of course, includes severe uh, immoral sexual energy like adultery. But Jesus then pushes it even further beyond something like adultery. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that adultery is not just an act of sex with someone who's not your spouse, but rather, he says, and I quote, anyone who looks at a woman with lust, uh, lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, even lust is porneia. And when you boil down sexual immorality to the point of lust, you realize just how far we naturally are from God's intention for, spe- for sex. You realize just how broken we are. And that brokenness, that sexual brokenness, I think plays out in two ways in particular that I want to put in front of you. First, that brokenness is a brokenness of our bodies. And then second, there's also a brokenness in our choices. Let me explain to you what I mean. First, there's a brokenness in our bodies. Our bodies, across the board, do not work as they're designed to. 
I mean, sure, they function, but God's good design has been marred. I mean, for example, sickness and death were not part of God's good design. It is part of the effects of the fall. But do you know what else has been impacted by sin? Our sexual desires have been impacted by sin. It has broken down our sexual desires. God intends that sex be between a husband and a wife in a permanent, committed marriage as a physical act of reflecting the inner weaving of lives. And though a mystery, in the words of Paul, it also reflects the self-giving love of Christ for his church. And so any sexual desire outside of that purpose is part of that brokenness. And we are sexually broken in our bodies and in our sexual desires. Across the full spectrum of breakdown, it's all part of what it means to be in this fall. I mean, literally, from on the, the full spectrum, from everything from those who are experiencing uh, sexual, uh, I'm sorry, gender dysphoria, all the way to those who are cisgendered and heterosexual and everything in between, all of us in our natural state, in various ways, are sexually broken. That there's something outside of God's good design for sex that's in us. Now I want to pause there for a second. Because even as we begin to have these discussions about the brokenness of our bodies, I know over the course of history, there have been some that have experienced unfair condemnation in various pockets of the church. I feel like I need to pause here and just say that historically, especially for our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community, and in more recent days, those who are dealing with gender dysphoria, I want to just say there has been, over the course of church history, a wrong and sinful attention paid to this group of people, this community. And so let me just pause by saying, for those that have been hurt by the church in those communities, I want you to know that I am so sorry for that hurt that you've experienced. I'm so sorry for the exclusion and the marginalization and even the hatred and violence that you've experienced. And please know that you are loved and you are seen and you are heard and I hope and I pray that you no longer begin to feel like those that are on the margins, but rather you begin to feel embraced and cared for, particularly in our church community. And I hope, ultimately, that you can see past the failings of Christians and instead see Jesus. And I hope that even by the end of today, you see him as far more beautiful than you even did stepping in. But here's what we need to understand and remember that the brokenness in our bodies is something that we all experience. We are all sexually broken. And here's what I find to be interesting about that, though. The brokenness that's in our bodies oftentimes is actually outside of our control. Right? There is this natural breakdown that's occurred. Oftentimes we are, well, not oftentimes, every time we are born sexually broken. And so as we grow and as we develop and as we become who we are, we begin to realize some of our sexual desires are maybe different or outside of some of the things that I described earlier. And the other thing that I recognize is that within our, the brokenness of our bodies, there also are these times when 
the brokenness solidifies in our body as a result of the experiences that we have in life. I know that there are some whose own brokenness has been the result of the brokenness of someone else. There has been injustices and hurts and great depravities that have perpetuated the brokenness. There have been struggles that people have experienced not because of anything that they've done, but solely because of the actions of others. And again, for those who have experienced that kind of brokenness, please know that you are loved and seen and heard. But there's also, though, not just this brokenness that happens within our bodies, because so often the brokenness that happens within our bodies are not the result of our own choices. And so there's this distinct brokenness in our bodies, but there's also a brokenness, secondly, of our choices. These are distinct things. Let me explain to you what I mean. Earlier, when defining porneia, I said that it was sexually, sexual energy used with someone who's not your spouse. And the reason why I said it that way is because there's a significant difference between the desires that come from the brokenness of our bodies and our sexuality and the sexual energy that's used with someone who is not our spouse. Those are very distinct. I mean, we intuitively know that there are desires that we all possess, sexual or otherwise, that we need to resist for our own good or for the good of others, right? But when we make a choice to act on those broken desires, that's when something begins to shift, right? We may not have a say in how exactly our bodies are broken and our sexuality is broken, but there's a distinction between that and the choices that we begin to make, and that tension between brokenness and the choices that we make, again, is just as old as humanity. Let me show you again what I mean. Uh, back to our, our creation story earlier, I mentioned that the failure of Adam and Eve was the result of a temptation that they experienced from the serpent. And what strikes me is how familiar the tactics of the serpent's uh, temptation are today, to us today. They, they, they sound so incredibly familiar. It's something we still are wrestling with. Let me explain to you what I mean. I have the passage up there so you can follow along with me. Um, but in Genesis 3, all right, here's the interaction that Eve has with the serpent. Verse 1 says, now the serpent has, uh, I'm sorry, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals in the Lord, uh, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Let me pause there for a second. What is that? Well, it's interesting to me that this temptation begins by questioning whether or not God can be trusted. Did God really say that? Okay, so number one. The second verse, though, goes on to say, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. It's on verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me pause there for a second. What is that? Now, he's not only questioning whether or not God can be trusted, but now he's beginning to question if God is good by insinuating that God is keeping something from them, keeping something from their fulfillment, for their fulfillment. 
So he questions whether or not he can be trusted. Then he questions whether or not it's good, because it seems like God's keeping them from experiencing some kind of fulfillment. And then in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. What is that? The serpent had convinced her to care more about what was pleasing and desirable to her than what God had deemed to be good. The tactic of the evil one from the beginning is to get us to question if God actually wants what's best for us. And then getting us to prioritize what is pleasing and desirable to us, even if it's outside of good design, God's good design, thus leading us to making broken choices. Why do I draw the story in? Because I think it's relevant when we're talking about broken decisions. I mean, did God really say that sex should be between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage? Did God really say that looking lustfully at others is wrong? Did God really say that those internal longings and desires are outside of his intention for you? I think he's just trying to keep you from being satisfied and fulfilled and happy. I mean, this is the tactic. He tempts us not to trust God, which is not sin, by the way. The temptation is not the sin. Everyone is tempted, even Jesus himself, the sinless one, was tempted. The problem comes when we believe Satan and we reject God and we act in accord with the brokenness of our bodies instead acting in accord of God's good design. And here's the thing. This, again, from, is what we are experiencing from the biblical perspective. But again, you've probably heard me just say a lot of different things that you may not even have frameworks for. Because a lot of this is based solely on the Bible's view of sex. And you might be hearing me say all of this, thinking, why should I care what the Bible has to say? You know, you've heard me say what the Bible says about how things should be. Why should that matter to you? I mean, let's be real. There are a lot of different conceptions of sex and the purpose of sex out there. Why listen to this one? Why care what the Bible has to say? The answer is because Jesus rose from the dead. We've got to make that turn. Because I just said a lot of different things that may uh, cause you to bristle. It may cause you to uh, feel as though you are in some way being condemned or in some way being taught something that is outside of what sex ought to be. And if you feel that way, I understand, but Jesus rose from the dead. Let me explain to you why that matters. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, you should care about everything I just said. If he didn't rise from the dead, who cares? Like, you just wasted 30 minutes of your life. It's fine. You can move on. But if he rose from the dead, then everything I just said is life. Everything that I just said is God showing himself to us through sex. Let me explain to you what I, what I mean by that, by considering how things will be. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Look at verse, uh, at the second part of uh, verse 13 into 14, and then uh, verse 18. Let me just read this for you quickly. Again, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead 
and he will rise, raise, uh, he will raise also, uh, us also, sorry. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Here's something that's so interesting to me. In all the years that I've been reading this passage, something never struck me like it struck me this past week as I was preparing for today. It's fascinating to me that in the midst of talking about sexual immorality, Paul feels it necessary to remind us of the resurrection as the reason why we flee sexual immorality. Blew my mind. I never noticed that. He connects sexual immorality to the resurrection. Why is that? I think it's because of two things, two reasons. The first reason is that I think we need assurance that God is actually for our good. And the other is to remind us that sex is powerful. Let me unpack those quickly. First, I think Paul connects sexual morality to the resurrection because we need assurance that God is for our good. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The reason we can trust that God is for our good and as a result, resist that which misaligns with his purposes is that he sent his son to give his life as a ransom for many, buying us out of slavery to sin and the brokenness of this world. In that, he proves that, you, that he is actually for your good. And so when we begin to hear things that seem to go against what God says, we, we begin to believe that maybe God isn't actually for my good. Maybe God is actually withholding something from me. Maybe God doesn't actually want me to be fulfilled. When the enemy comes to try to convince, of, convince us of those things, we can say with confidence, no. Because the life and the death of Jesus proves otherwise. God is for my good. But the other thing, that I think the other reason why I think Paul connects sexual morality to the resurrection is because sex is that powerful. It's an acknowledgement of how powerful sex and urges actually are. Sexual energy that does not align with God's intention is powerful. And some of you feel it so intensely. It consumes you. It disorients you and maybe even has become a source of your identity. It's so powerful that it makes you wonder, like Eve, if God actually wants what's best for you because it feels like rejecting uh, his purpose would be far from fulfilling and it would be more fulfilling to just embrace what it is that we feel. And Paul knows this. And so he reminds us that the power that is pulling you can only be resisted by a greater power that is given to you. And what is that power? Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead empowers you. I mean, sex is powerful, yes, but our resurrected Savior is far more powerful. And so Paul is reminding us to look at the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, to trust the Spirit of God that is within us, to live our sexual lives in a way that honors God's good design, 
Now to close, I want to I want to point your eyes to something. I want to read something to you. If you've been with us in the series, you know that over the course of the series, we've been really focusing in on uh, um, 1 Corinthians 15, which is where Paul talks about how the the resurrection of uh, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile. But if it did, everything gets seen through that resurrection. And in that portion of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us of the restoration to come in the resurrection. And I want to just read to you again the words. You heard them read already, but I want to read them to you again because in the midst of temptation, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the disorientation that comes with the brokenness of our sexuality, I want us to remember the abundant joy that is to come when our resurrected Savior restores our broken bodies, renews us completely. Verse 40 and 42 of uh, First, uh, First Corinthians 15 says this. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another. And stars differ from stars in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I want you to hear that hope because many of us feel the weight of our broken bodies, but this is the promise of what is to come, complete and total restoration in your body. And so look to that resurrection with hope Trust that the goodness of God has been made made clear in the person and work of our Savior. And for those who trust in him, I trust that that spirit of God that rests and resides in you, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, will help us, encourage us, empower us to live lives of sex and sexuality that honor him in his good design. And I trust that as we do, we will see him all the more beautiful. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know that you see us down to the very bottom. You know how broken we are, not just in our sexuality, but in every way. And God, often when we struggle to recognize whether or not you're good, what we need most is to be reminded of the ways that you've proven yourself good. It's in the person and work of Jesus that we see that goodness. For he has come to take upon himself our brokenness, our sexual immorality, our sin. Take it upon himself, and in return, he gives us life. Resurrection life. And though we struggle and suffer now, all of us, We look to the cross and the resurrection for hope, trusting that you intend good things for us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. As we now turn to the table, I pray that this would be one opportunity, again, that we have to be reminded of the work of our Savior. We ask all this in his name. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.